Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are so glad you've decided to join us. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And this was a damn interesting week. So let's get started with our first link. First First link. link. All right. From The Guardian, we've got this not at all alarming story. De-extinction. Scientists are planning the multi-million dollar resurrection of the Tasmanian tiger. Oh, okay. I mean, of all the things they could bring back, that one's not the worst. So. Right, but it is, lest we forget, an apex predator. Okay. So, you know, <laughs> well, let's let's figure out how we got here. The University of Melbourne partners with U.S. biotech company to plan genetic restoration of the thylacine. I'm assuming that's how it's pronounced because that's how I'm going to go with it for the rest of this article. All but right. that is the official name of the Tasmanian tiger. If you go to the article, you can see some images of the last known Tasmanian tiger in footage that was digitized by the National Film and Sound Archive of Australia. It died out in the 1930s. It is a marsupial, and it is native to Tasmania. And it is the second undertaking by a Texas-based biotech company named Colossal. Their first effort was to genetically engineer techniques to recreate the woolly mammoth and return it to the Arctic tundra. So these are just plans that it's announcing, but they've already got a couple of these plans now in the works. And the second one, it is a partnership with the University of Melbourne. Earlier, they got a $5 million philanthropic gift to open a thylacine genetic restoration lab. I wonder if that donor was short with a white beard. beard. Right, right, right. You're you're seeing it, right? (laughs) The lab's team has already sequenced the genome of a juvenile specimen, providing what its leader, Professor Andrew Pask, called, quote, a complete blueprint on how to essentially build a thylacine. So what are scientists trying to do here? Well, they want to take stem cells from a living species with similar DNA the fat-tailed dunnert, and then (laughs) turn them into thylacine cells, or the closest approximation possible, using gene editing expertise developed by a professor of genetics at Harvard Medical School and Colossal's co-founder. New marsupial-specific assisted reproductive technologies will be needed to use the stem cells to make an embryo, which would then be transferred into either an artificial womb or a dunnert surrogate to gestate. So I have a question that's going to reveal my ignorance, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. But is a Tasmanian tiger the same as a Tasmanian devil, like the kind that harasses Bugs Bunny? <laughs> you know, I, I probably should have Googled that ahead of time. They are different. I, okay. I'm looking right. it up right now. They okay. are different. Good the devil yeah. is a little darker, right? It's kind of like dark and bear-like, almost like a big old badger thing. Yeah, it's like a tiny or big badger. It's kind of hard to tell the scale, but it's more like a badger, whereas the Tasmanian tiger is really more like a dog than anything when you look at the images. Yeah, which is naturally why they called it a tiger, right? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, the challenges faced by the project are significant, and Mm. the scientists acknowledge several breakthrough steps will have to land for it to succeed. On reproductive technology, Pask said, quote, We are pursuing growing marsupials from conception to birth in a test tube without a surrogate 
And if they're successful, they plan to introduce the animal into a controlled setting on Tasmanian private land with an eventual goal of returning it to the wild. 100% literally Jurassic Park. The researchers <laughs> said that returning an apex predator could help rebalance the state's ecosystem, but they also hope their work could have a wider impact in helping to address an extinction crisis, which I know is a super bummer, but the world is changing so rapidly for existing conservation techniques to save a lot of threatened species. They're hoping to address concerns about the genetic health of the species, which is an issue with the now extinct population, by sequencing the genomes of between 80 and 100 individuals, and that dealing with genetic diversity was, quote, relatively straightforward compared with the other challenges the research <laughs> faced. As you can imagine, this announcement has received a mixed response from mm -hmm. conservation biologists. <laughs> Corey Bradshaw, a professor in global ecology at Flinders University, believed it was unlikely to be successful. Quote, even if you can do it in the lab, and I have my doubts about that, how do you create the thousands of individuals of sufficient genetic variation you need to create a healthy population? Hmm. But the financial support for de-extinction research should not be seen as a zero-sum game. Basically, this is trying to say, you know, we want to save the current species we have, but if someone wants to fund bringing back the thylacine and they don't want to fund something else, then I don't know, money talks, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, get your money where you can and use it on the thing that you actually want to use it for. I yeah, don't know. but it feels suspiciously specific, like Tasmanian tiger. Okay. Well, I mean, I guess really? it was the thing that went extinct most recently. Like yeah, they, yeah. they have enough evidence of what it was and they have enough samples. I mean, honestly, if they're bringing back a woolly mammoth and they get it wrong, who's to say? Who's going to argue with them, you know? <laughs> like, it feels like they're setting themselves up for failure here because people would be like, no, we have video. You didn't get it right. Whereas... Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. And now we got a who knows what roaming around, yes, on an island, but mm, they better at least have cameras all over the place. At least give us some content out of this disaster. <laughs> Next link. <laughs> Next link. This article comes to us from gizmodo.com, and it's titled, Chemists Found a Way to Break Down Dangerous Forever Chemicals. Ooh, that's uplifting. Yeah, it's a huge deal, actually. They're everywhere. Decades of industrial and commercial production and use have left basically no corner of our lives untouched by PFAS, or polyfluoroalkyl substances, commonly called forever chemicals. They accumulate in our environments and in our bodies. Boo. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're even finding these things in, like, the bloodstreams of newborn children, you know? Right. Like, yeah, they're everywhere. Yeah, they're absolutely everywhere. So why are PFASs so dangerous? They're chemicals with a lot of different uses, food packaging, firefighting foams, nonstick cookware, furniture, etc. And their main draw is that they're super good at repelling water, oil, and grease, and even at tamping out fires. Hmm. They do all of this by being super non-reactive. PFAS hmm. are made up of highly stable molecules that basically just stick to themselves. But when they leach into the environment and enter our bodies, our systems have no way of getting rid of them, so they pile up and cause problems. Research has found links between PFAS and multiple types of cancer, immune system problems, high cholesterol, liver disease, and issues with pregnancy and infancy development. Yet, they're very difficult, nigh impossible, to avoid. They've been detected in drinking water across the U.S., both indoor and outdoor air, farm fields worldwide, fish, cosmetics, and elsewhere. So, William Dichtel, a chemist at Northwestern University and one of the study researchers in a press briefing on Tuesday said, I think it's fair to say that all other emerging PFAS degradation methods are things that you would classify as very high energy or relatively exotic conditions. 
And using just a little bit of heat and supplies that can be found in high school chemistry labs, such as sodium hydroxide or lye and a solvent called DMSO, the researchers were able to take one type of concentrated PFAS and break it up into smaller non-toxic compounds. Hmm. Brittany Trang, who was the study's lead researcher and completed her PhD at Northwestern University last month, said, Most chemists are taking two molecules and squishing them together to make one big molecule, like taking two Legos and putting them together. But instead, what we're doing is smashing the Lego to bits and looking at what was left to figure out how it fell apart. Trang and her co-researchers heated their PFAS, lye, and DMSO solution at temperatures between 80 and 120 degrees Celsius, or 176 to 248 Fahrenheit, and after 4 hours, nearly 80% of the PFAS was gone, and after 12 hours, more than 90% of it disappeared, replaced by benign carbon byproducts like oxalate, which is in many of the vegetables we eat, or mm. glycolic acid, which is commonly used in skincare products. Yeah. Even if it's beautiful, the new research isn't perfect. It's not the end of the PFAS problem or a quick fix. For one, the methods only work on some PFASs. There are over 5,000 unique PFAS compounds wow. out there, and they come in different categories. Two of the biggest classes are known as carboxylates and sulfonates. The new method successfully got rid of almost all of the carboxylates in a solution, but it doesn't work for the equally prevalent sulfonates or any other PFAS types. Hmm. The researchers are hoping they or others could address this and expand to sulfonates in follow-up studies. And it's not as if researchers can just dump lye and DMSO into our water supply to get rid of the PFAS there. (laughs) Please don't. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Trang told Gizmodo in a phone call, that would really not be good either. (laughs) So other scientists and engineers and lab groups have been working to solve the PFAS problem and have made some big strides recently. Earlier this year, a group of engineers published a method involving UV, light, sulfite, and iodine that could be used to break down a broad array of PFAS. And some work has focused on using microbes to do the same. But given the scale of the problem, we probably need every method and all the knowledge we can get. Trang ends by telling Gizmodo, it's not going to save the world tomorrow as much as I wish it could, but maybe it could help for a day after that. Yeah, I mean, baby steps. Hopefully they get there before we all die. So, you know. (laughs) I love the idea of it being broken down into glycolic acid. It's sort of a chemical exfoliant in skincare. So, I mean, talk about a new revenue stream cleaning our earth. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, exfoliating the earth doesn't sound good. Because it sounds like we're getting rid of us, is what I'm imagining. Honey, she got a lot of dry, flaky spots right now. We want to get it all smooth again. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. link. All right, this next article is from The Guardian, and it's called How Medieval Carpenters Are Rebuilding Notre Dame. Again? Oh, after the fire. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, this one's kind of a story within a story, because before we can even get to the Notre Dame part, we have to explain these so-called medieval carpenters and where they came from, right? (laughs) Because obviously they are not zombies. They are modern carpenters (laughs) using medieval techniques. But it's honestly, it's so much more than that. So about 25 years ago, a group of experimental archaeologists decided to try to build a medieval castle from the ground up using only medieval tools, techniques, and local materials that someone in that era would have been able to access. Whoa. Yeah. They picked a clearing in the woods of Burgundy, France. They pinned the official year they were working at at 1253, and they named their project Gedelon Castle. (laughs) And... I'm sorry, that just feels like more like a cattle run in the Old West than like a medieval castle reconstruction. Well, to be fair, that's probably my Americanized pronunciation. Like in French, it's like Guidelon. Like, it's, oh, you know. Okay. All right. Yeah. 
But, you know, and it's sort of for science, but it's also sort of a tourist attraction like Colonial Williamsburg, where people can go and see what Mm. life was like. And that's basically how they fund their ongoing efforts. They even made up a little fictional background story for themselves, which is that the minor nobleman Gilbert Courtenay has ridden off to fight in the Crusades, leaving his wife in charge of the workers who are building the family's new home, which is a reasonable but not ostentatious chateau that befits his social position as a knight in the service of King Louis IX. So, you know, they're hacking stones out of the quarry, they're dragging them up by wagon, they're blacksmithing all their own tools, they're using foot-powered wheels to sharpen these tools, they're wearing the appropriate clothing, they're cutting roof beams out of entire tree trunks just like they used to do in medieval times. Ooh. Carpenter Stefan Bodie, who has worked at Gedelon Castle since 1999, says that doing it this way keeps the central core or the heart of the tree intact, and that's what gives it strength and resistance that modern wood from a sawmill simply doesn't have. Anyway, the site draws around 300,000 visitors a year, and there's a whole BBC documentary series on it called Secrets of the Castle, which is linked in the article and which I may or may not have gotten completely sucked into. But in April of 2019, it suddenly became far more than just a tourist attraction when the cathedral at Notre Dame caught on fire and suffered significant damage to its wooden-beamed roof. Mm. And actually, the roof at Notre Dame was known as La Forêt, or the forest, because of the large number of trees that were used in its construction. Frederick Epod, a medieval wood specialist, said, After the fire, there were a lot of people saying it would take thousands of trees and we didn't have enough of the right ones and the wood would have to be dried for years and nobody even knew anything about how to produce beams like they did in the Middle Ages. They said it was impossible, but we knew it could be done because Gedelon has been doing it for years. Mm. Yeah! Bodie the carpenter agrees. He says, it's what we have done every day for 25 years. There are people outside of here who can do it now, but I tell you, they all came here to learn how. So basically, these people have kind of been over here doing it the whole time. And when Notre Dame burned, they're all like, oh, you need to build a medieval roof? We're the only people who know how to do it. (laughs) And the fact that they had fresh skills and were, I mean, the timing of this is remarkable. Exactly. So a number of the companies bidding for the Notre Dame work have already engaged carpenters who were trained at Gedelon, and the Chateau's blacksmith has been commissioned to make the axes that will cut the wood for the new Notre Dame roof. There's also a fun bit in here where Marilyn Martin, the co-founder of Gedelon Castle, she gets a tiny bit salty about the fact that they've apparently taken some flack over the years for funding their project with tourist money. She said, we work with many state research bodies, but some people wrote us off as a theme park. Now, after 25 years, we are the only ones who can understand and are able to do what has to be done. And they discover we have not sold our soul to the devil. (laughs) It wasn't a theme park. It was a think tank. But yeah, actual. Unfortunately, not everyone is on board with doing it the old fashioned way, or at least they don't understand how long the old fashioned way is going to take. Because French President Emmanuel Macron has pledged to reopen the ravaged cathedral by 2024. Epod's opinion on that is, quote, We are talking about a cathedral, and we have the money to do it the right way. If we rush it, there's a risk it will be done badly and something is missed. Macron's insistence that the cathedral be opened by 2024 is idiotic. So, you know, I would have done a terrible French accent, but that would be horrible. But you can definitely hear, like, he's not at any way restraining himself on what he thinks. Like, the French are very open about their political opinions. Truly a subtle remark. Exactly. It's very cool. I would love to go visit it. Yeah, I totally want to go there and see it. I mean, think of the Ren fairs you could have at a setting like that. 
Oh, absolutely. And honestly, it's not that big. That's kind of the thing where they were saying 300,000 visitors. I was like, man, that's a lot of people. Like, I guess they're all standing around the periphery watching or so because it's not a huge area. But it is mm-hmm. kind of out in the middle of the forest. There's nothing else around. So maybe there's like a little oh. bit of wood strolling going on as well. I, I am telling you, that is the ideal location for a festival. I'm ready. Well, get, <laughs> get your corset out. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. We've got a really cool bit from Atlas Obscura called When Every Ketchup But One Went Extinct. Oh, I'm on an extinction theme oh. today. <laughs> I mean, it's Heinz, right? Of course it's Heinz. Okay. You already knew, right? And that's because <laughs> today, Heinz accounts for more than half of the American ketchup market, which is domination. I mean, Heinz is ketchup, but it yeah. wasn't always this way. Around 1900, G.F. Mason, who was the manager of the Heinz Company's research laboratory, was doing a bunch of ketchup experiments. He tinkered with sugar, vinegar, spices in search of his equivalent of the four-minute mile, which was a shelf-stable, chemical-preservative-free ketchup. Mm. Hey, not asking for too much, right? (laughs) Each of his carefully bottled preservative-free samples kept for about 60 hours until, one by one, the corks popped out and the contents spoiled. Historically, there were tons of different ways of making ketchup, according to Andrew Smith, a leading historian of American ketchup and (laughs) author of Pure Ketchup, a history of America's national condiment. And that's because in the early to mid 1800s, Americans fermented tomato ketchup from a variety of home recipes. The first recorded recipe for a home fermented tomato ketchup was published in 1810, that itself was a descendant of British imitations of Asian catsup or fermented fish sauce that the British encountered on colonial voyages. Hmm. So tomato catsup, which cooks made with ingredients including apples and anchovies, caught on quickly due to its bright flavor, which livened up an otherwise monotonous American diet. And because it was fermented, it boasted a shelf life of one to seven years. Hmm. Okay, so let's get to after the Civil War. Companies are mass producing, bottling, and selling ketchup to a new class of urban consumers. This ketchup was generally thinner, less sweet, less vinegary, and more tomatoey than present day ketchup. But while fermentation was a boon for home cooks, it was a liability for manufacturers because fermentation turned ketchup sour which was an increasingly unpopular characteristic as Americans gravitated towards sugar towards the end of the century. But fermentation, despite making shelf-stable food, sped up an already dangerous process. So occasionally, bottles of fermenting ketchup would explode. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Kind of what happens when you ferment things. But to protect customers and their bottom line, ketchup companies started turning towards chemical preservatives. But then in 1883, a guy named Dr. Harvey Wiley became chief of the Division of Chemistry of the USDA, where he fought preservatives with the religious zeal of a man raised evangelical in rural Indiana. So (laughs) for the following two decades, he proposed countless congressional bills on food safety, each of which was killed. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But in 1904, he formed the Poison Squad in which he enlisted a group of healthy young male volunteers, mostly his colleagues at the Department of Agriculture, to eat all their meals at work and ingest increasingly large quantities of preservatives. 
And the results read like the last 10 seconds of a modern-day drug commercial. Stomach cramps, headaches, sore throat, dizziness, decline in appetite, loss of weight. <laughs> Multiple trials stopped when participants became too sick to continue. Mm -hmm. Obviously, this was sensationalized in the press, and the Poison Squad shifted public opinion against preservatives. So after a meeting of the U.S. Regional Canners Associates in 1907, Wiley called for a ban on the use of benzoates, the preservative of choice for the ketchup industry. But executives were not convinced he could not come up with an alternative to prevent ketchup bottles from souring and exploding. But this is when Wiley found an ally, our very own Henry Hines, owner of the H.J. Hines Company. Hines supported Wiley's food regulations movement. So their earlier ketchups were medium-bodied with average acidity, but in 1906, they replaced this ketchup with a shelf-stable, preservative-free ketchup that had twice as much salt, twice as much sugar, and twice as much vinegar as other commercial ketchups, producing 12 million bottles of it in the next two years with little spoilage. And this little throwaway just absolutely got me. A few years later, after a woman in Pennsylvania sent Heinz a dozen bottles of her own homemade, tastier, better-looking, benzoate-free ketchup, they adopted her recipe, which was also sweet, oh, vinegary, wow. and thick. I hope she got paid because, oh my she God. Did <laughs> <laughs> I mean, oh, unreal. But thanks in part to high-quality ingredients, Heinz's new tomato ketchup cost twice or three times more than the competitors. But... The price increase also paid for the largest advertising campaign the industry had ever seen. And this is mm. where it gets ugly. In one of several advertisements to grocers, Heinz stated that grocers should get rid of any chemically preserved foods before they were confiscated by the government. Uh. In response to Heinz and Wiley, a cabal of ketchup companies formed a fierce pro-benzoate lobby. <laughs> they met with President Theodore Roosevelt and argued that an anti-benzoate law would destroy the ketchup industry because American grocery stores stocked very few preservative-free shelf-stable ketchups. So the lobby said Heinz's claims were impossible, and they spread rumors about ketchup bottles exploding without preservatives. They're going to fight back. According to Smith, an industry journal reported that, quote, a priest in Washington, Pennsylvania, was hauled across the room and struck his head against the door because of an explosion caused uh. by the lack of preservatives. So it got real ugly, but by 1911, Heinz won the fight. His pricey, sugary, thick, vinegary ketchup dominated the market, and it has until this very day. He was at the right place, at the right time, with the right product, with good promotion. People basically got really scared of ketchup. And if you wanted to have ketchup and you wanted to be safe, you had to grab the Heinz. But today, a few craft ketchup makers, <laughs> craft ketchup makers, <laughs> are experimenting with the condiment's sweetness, acidity, and tomato taste. We are reintroducing varied diversity of flavors in the condiment. You can find Sir Kensington's. They sell a popular ketchup that is chunkier with more of Ooh. a tomato taste. All right. If that's your thing. Chef Jose Andres pulled 1800s recipes from archived cookbooks to make a yellow tomato ketchup at America Eats Tavern, mm. a pop-up that has since closed. And a company oh. called Molinay to Bildborst claims to have revived a low-sugar 19th century recipe with its savory ketchup. They only stock in the West Coast in Texas and Amazon sold out, but keep your eye out for it. Ketchup need not taste only like Heinz. Yeah, I got to admit, we buy a specialty ketchup in my house. It's basically Primal. a lady. It's, oh. it's, yeah, it's sweetened with honey. 
but mm-hmm. it's very savory. So it's got, mm-hmm. you know, very bay leaves and pepper and tomatoes. I like it. I've grown to appreciate it. Mm-hmm. But I also like Heinz better because it's sweet. And Loaded it's got, with I mean, sugar. Yeah. Like, I, I recognize why I like it. I don't, I'm yep. not proud of why I like it. But, <laughs> but nothing delivers that satisfying endorphin or serotonin hit like fat, salt, sugar. Bam! Yeah, I think it's pretty telling that the way they made it more appealing was to just up the salt and vinegar and sugar. It's like at some point it just stops being tomato-based at all. It's just sort of like <laughs> sugar red, based, yeah. red sugar yeah. vinegar. Yeah. But let's not forget the other critical component, which is sanitation. Keep it clean, y'all. Keep it clean. Right, right. Which is, kind of makes you wonder what they were doing before. It's like, yep. oh, we should sanitize? Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. We've always been real late to that game, haven't we? Right. <laughs> Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from NewYorkTimes.com, and it's titled How Chewing Shaped Human Evolution. Ooh. Hmm. Humans spend about 35 minutes every day chewing. Hmm. That adds up to more than a full week out of every year. But that's nothing compared to the time spent masticating by our cousins. (laughs) Chimps chew for 4.5 hours a day, and orangutans clock 6.6 hours. A study published Wednesday in the Journey Science Advances explores how much energy people use while chewing and how that may have guided or been guided by our gradual transformation into modern humans. Chewing, in addition to keeping us from choking, makes the energy and nutrients in food accessible to the digestive system. But the very act of chewing requires us to expend energy. Adam Van Casteren, an author of the new study and a research associate at the University of Manchester in England, says that scientists haven't delved too deeply into the energetic costs of chewing partly because, compared with other things we do, it's a thin slice of the energy use pie. But even comparatively small advantages can play a big role in evolution, and he wanted to find out if that might be the case with chewing. To measure the energy that goes into chewing, Dr. Van Casteren and his colleagues outfitted study of participants in the Netherlands with plastic hoods that looked like an astronaut's helmet, he said. (laughs) The hoods were connected to tubes to measure oxygen and carbon dioxide from breathing. Because metabolic processes are fueled by oxygen and produce carbon dioxide, gas exchange can be a useful measure for how much energy something takes. The researchers then gave the subjects gum. The participants didn't get the sugary kind, though. The gum bases they chewed were flavorless and odorless. Boo! (laughs) Yeah, a little bit sad. (laughs) Digestive systems respond to flavors and scents, so the researchers wanted to make sure they're only measuring the energy associated with chewing Mm. and not the energy of a stomach gearing up for a tasty meal. Hmm. The test subjects chewed two pieces of gum, one hard and one soft, for 15 minutes each. The results surprised researchers. The softer gum raised the participants' metabolic rates about 10% higher than when they were resting. The harder gum caused a 15% increase. Dr. Van Casteren said, I thought there wasn't going to be as big a difference. Very small changes in the material properties of the item you're chewing can cause quite substantial increases in energy expenditure, and that opens up a whole universe of questions. Because chewing tougher food, or in this case, tougher gum, takes significantly more energy, these findings suggest that the metabolic costs of chewing may have played an important role in our evolution. Making food easier to process through cooking, mashing foods with tools, and growing crops optimized for eating might have dialed down the evolutionary pressure for us to be super chewers. Our evolving chewing needs may have even shaped what our faces look like. Justin Ledegar, a biological anthropologist at East Tennessee State University who is not involved with the study, said, One thing that we haven't really been able to figure out is why the human skull is so funny looking. (laughs) Compared to our closest relatives, our facial skeletons are delicately built with jaws, teeth, and chewing muscles that are all relatively small. 
He explains all this reflects a reduced reliance on forceful chewing, but he adds that our flatter faces and shorter jaws let us bite more efficiently. It makes the whole process of feeding just metabolically less costly. Humans developed ways to chew smarter, not harder. So does that mean if I chew gum all day long, I'm technically exercising? I think so, yeah. Like, it might actually kick up energy-burning processes is kind of the... It's not what they said, but that's right, what I got from it. That's just, what I'm choosing to take away from it. Exactly, exactly. Just don't forget um, about leg day lest you start to develop some, like, super wicked pit bull jaw muscles. Yeah, can't, can't let all those chew days get in the way of the leg day, you know? That's right. right. It is interesting, though. My mother is actually a health food chef, or used to be, and she learned from the Kushio family, who essentially devised macrobiotic food and cooking as a philosophy. He said, or the story goes, that he survived famines in Japan by chewing brown rice until it was just water. And so he would try and, you know, chew everything a hundred times, get all the nutrients he could get out of it because he had nothing else to eat. Right. So very interesting, potentially apocryphal story. But uh, I've always been interested in the chewing thing because it does feel different when you like sit there and chew something fully and just be present with it. It's a very different kind of experience. It's interesting. Hmm. I, I'm not going to do that with my food. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, it's okay. I'm I know I weird. should. I acknowledge that it would be good for me. I just, I don't know. There's you can't a point tell me to becomes... be mindful. Don't push your mindfulness on me. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's got to stop somewhere between 35 minutes and 6.6 .6 hours, right? Right, right, right. right, right, right. There's limits. Yeah. <laughs> Next link. Next link. All right, well, we're definitely on a theme. We've got a quick little one here from Real Clear Science called You Don't Actually Need a Stomach to Live. Oh, yeah. really? <laughs> yeah. So first, the sad bit. There are a few medical reasons why you might be missing a stomach, but the most common one is gastric cancer, for which a partial or total gastrectomy is the best available intervention. But the good news is, like the title said, you can totally get by without one hmm. because it turns out that the stomach is really more of a storage and partitioning center rather than an actual digester of food. What hmm. it really does is allow us to eat large quantities of food in one sitting, and then it slowly doles that out into the small intestine over the next several hours, which is a nice feature to have. Of course, we all like to eat a big meal, but it's not strictly necessary. Hmm. So aside from eating many smaller meals throughout the day, what sort of lifestyle changes are we looking at if you woke up tomorrow and found yourself without a stomach? <laughs> First, doctors will tell you you have to really focus on chewing your food before yep. swallowing. Not only to mash it up, but because saliva actually contains digestive enzymes that will help ease the burden on the small intestine. So really, they're absolutely confirming what you're saying, Way, that you do have to chew your food more, and it's better for you if you do. Nice. Intuitive science. That's right. <laughs> Generally speaking, you will have to reduce your sugar and starch intake because carbohydrates are harder for the small intestine to break down. It can do it, but what happens is it needs a lot of extra fluid, so the small intestine will draw as much as three pints of water into itself, most of which it steals from the bloodstream, and that can cause a sudden catastrophic drop in blood pressure. Slightly less oh. catastrophically, it can also lead to bloating, nausea, diarrhea, and, quote, a cacophony of noise from the belly. <laughs> so delicately stated <laughs> yeah it's also going to be helpful if you can consume nutrient and calorie dense foods because that's going to lower the overall quantity of food you need to eat which will reduce the number of hours a day you're grazing but then again you know maybe if we're aiming for six hours a day of chewing it's not so bad you know 
And if none of that sounds appealing, you can always go on a liquid medical diet, which will provide all your nutrients and require no digestion at all, but doesn't taste especially good. Mm -hmm. Ironically, since lacking a stomach generally forces people, albeit against their will, into healthier diets and better chewing habits, most patients actually find that after a one to two year period of adjustment, they feel even better than they did when they still had a stomach. Mm. I don't think they're saying it's recommended. It's just maybe not the end of the world. You know, they're trying mm. to provide hope for cancer patients, I suppose, and recommend maybe, you know, the eat smaller meals throughout the day, chew more, you know, good habits we could all do. Eat fewer starches and sugars. That's good advice for anybody. Mm -hmm. And chew a lot, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I think there is something to at least experimenting with chewing style. I kind of have bypassed this with my own life hack cheat by just blending the crap out of a bunch of like bitter greens and fruits and collagen and hemp Oh yeah, seeds blending is definitely, it's better for you. If your food is blended, it's going to be more yeah. easily absorbed. I'd rather have a robot chew my food for me. <laughs> That's what a blender is, is it not? Yeah, no, a chewing robot. I mean, it's not as cool as an actual robot that like, you know, like a mama that, like, bird chews it, it for yeah, you and then like mouth. spits it into your mouth. Yeah, I mean, I'll put some googly <laughs> eyes on it and report back. <laughs> Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from the nextweb.com and it's titled Why Janet Jackson Made Laptops Crash. Miss <laughs> <laughs> Jackson, if you're nasty. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> so this week, Microsoft Chief Software Engineer Raymond Chen shared the story of what happens when older Windows XP laptops play the music video for Jackson's Rhythm Nation. An unnamed major computer manufacturer discovered that playing the video would crash certain models of laptops. <laughs> Even weirder, playing the music video on one laptop resulted in a crash of another laptop nearby. <laughs> Whoa, what? Like a oh, virus? But like... <laughs> so the song contained a resonant frequency that affected the laptop's hard drive. Chen recounted, what? it turns out the song contained one of the natural resonant frequencies for the model of 5,400 RPM laptop hard drives that they and other manufacturers used. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> That's yeah. such an old school, destructive, like anarchist kind of tool. Like to just walk up and play a song at your computer and it goes down. I mean, how do, you can't protect against that. That's insane. I would love to see like a Netflix heist that opens with them blasting Janet Jackson at some office building and then everything shuts down and they just sweep yeah, it. That would be awesome. Built-in yeah. soundtrack, right? <laughs> yeah. Hell yeah. Fortunately, slash unfortunately, the manufacturer did solve the problem. Ah. And they did this by adding a custom filter in the audio pipeline that detected and removed the offending frequencies during audio playback. Ah. Uh, which is kind of funny. But, you know, if you're not playing on a laptop that has encountered this issue and you have a 5400 RPM hard drive, then, you know, maybe it's still a possibility. <laughs> well, um, or if you're deliberately trying to do it, you're blasting it through speakers. You're not trying to remove that frequency. You're yeah, I'm just saying yeah. mayhem. We're trying to cause mayhem here. <laughs> yeah, very much so. Rhythm mayhem. And, uh, <laughs> it's not an isolated incident either. Another Microsoft dev revealed that playing the game 101 monochrome mazes would reliably crash their machine because the speaker trace and reset trace were too close to each other. Huh. I'm not sure what that means, but there's a Twitter link in the article if you'd like to follow it that seems to basically be about timing as it relates to the motherboard. Hmm. This phenomenon not only affects computers. In 2011, the Technomart shopping mall in Seoul was evacuated in response to 10 minutes of swaying. Mall <gasps> officials originally suspected a localized earthquake. 
However, the culprit was actually a group of middle-aged people doing a Taibo workout to the song The Power by Snap. <laughs> I got the power! And the scenario was successfully replicated using 17 middle-aged participants who exercised the song for five minutes. <laughs> So, you know, enthusiastic dancing in unison at gigs can also cause vibrational resonance, and it all brings another meaning to the term good vibrations. <laughs> <laughs> and there's really, like, so many links to this phenomenon in this article if you're interested in that, because it is kind of one of the most magical things in physics that happens. Uh, yeah. This is a very kind of, like, chaotic manifestation of it. Wow. Yeah, vibrational resonance is just inherently cool. And it also leads you to start thinking about like, okay, well, what's the frequency that could cause my liver to disintegrate? Like there's, mm -hmm. I just, oh. <laughs> which again, very super villain of me, I understand. But like. <laughs> Organ liquefying levels of volume. <laughs> all right. Well, that is all we have time for this week. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include a compendium of watery turmoil, how to kill a newspaper, and the surprisingly scandalous origins of Disneyland. So all that and more can be found on damninteresting.com. If you like our podcast and want to support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.